Reagan? I'm surprised you Reagan, guys. what's wrong? Uh. I'm gonna be Drew. Why? Mm. We're chilling. today we're unburdened oh man we're just chilling on some what is this it's not wood bridge it's a step above yeah it's like it's like a quarter step above i bought it i don't remember why i bought uh behringer there we go mm. it's a chill pod today behringer is that like the microphone what company? is this about what's this podcast about this podcast is about pop culture no but we bought a mic a pop culture podcast I mean right now. welcome it's a it's a it's a chill one. We don't really have much of an agenda today. We got a couple mm. news items. We got a couple ketchup items. What we don't got is a Drew. Mm. Yeah, he I like so a little bit of background for the listeners. I mopped him up in the poll this week for the best album draft. He, he is winning. He was sobbing uncontrollably. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he was like, I can't back. he was inarticulate. So we told him, Drew, you did so bad. You're not allowed on the podcast this week. I, I think he just thinks that he's better than us now because he cleaned up. See, is he joining like one of our rival podcasts or something? He's probably getting picked up by like Doughboys or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he he thinks he's better than us it's all the women that chase him that all vote yeah. for him mm -hmm. exactly. he puts in his tinder profile like winner of two straight album his tinder <laughs> draft polls. his tinder image is just the we bought a mic uh album art mm. and everybody knows like oh okay yeah i got it. <sighs> okay well now i'm in i'm too intimidated to but i want right. to talk while they're not here um hunter can you teach Ernest how to cheat so that <laughs> the bot hopefully <laughs> hopefully he can like win one of his own like games so on this thing please. i would but here's like i don't know anything about that <laughs> i have no idea How could you possibly who know? organize this bot army <laughs> mm -hmm. so i am i i can't i can't help you i'm sorry mm -hmm. welcome to the growing. show we bought a mic a pop culture podcast i'm Ernest. i am Ah, uh, what is this? A cab sav hunter. Cab sav hunter. And joining us today is Merlot Lee Perry. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We're having a very chill night, a wine night, if you will, um, here on the show. And we're just relaxing. We're talking. And we're happy to have you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. It feels on. very sexy in here. Like it, the lights are low. Mm -hmm. Hunter brought wine. Like what would it be like if I wasn't here and it was you? you yeah. Know? Wouldn't it be like crazy if I also brought flowers and like, <gasps> here we go. Poof. <laughs> oh, shit. So we're going to get some. <laughs> Thank you for items. joining us from the other room, Lee. I appreciate that. Uh, things that we've been watching. But before then, I want to have a chat. Because much like Drew is dead from this podcast for today, Rip. movies are dead <laughs> from the world for now. Okay. Theatrical movies. We can still watch movies at home. We just got a new little Chromecast that I love. I've been watching some crazy good stuff on there. We've been watching some crazy good stuff. But if you want to go to a movie theater today in the world in 2020, you're going to have a bad time. So not only are we in the middle of a pandemic, 
But mm-hmm. as we've covered in great detail, the new release slate of 2020 is pretty much non-existent. And those of us who keep up with movies and movie news have known that it is absolutely inevitable for every movie that was saying, oh, we'll come out in September. Oh, we'll come out in October. We'll come out in November for that not to happen. And now the slate is pretty much cleared out. There's essentially pretty much nothing. Everything has pretty much been pushed to 2021. There's a couple things still on the, the schedule. Um, I believe Wonder Woman has yet to push out of 2020 officially, even though we all know there's no it way hasn't they're going to officially been pushed. I think they're saying Christmas. Uh, uh don't think that's going to happen. Um, it feels like a March release for that one. Like it'll try and get in, like it'll try and be one of the first big movies back to like, welcome you back to the theater. That that's m- kind of what I want to m- talk about. Maybe is, maybe is March really going to be back. So, you uh, put this on here mostly because so Soul, uh, a Pixar big tentpole Pixar movie, is moving to Disney Plus. Notably, not premium Disney Plus. They're not doing the Mulan route where you have to sign up for Disney Plus and then pay an additional thirty dollars to rent this movie. They're just dropping it for everybody to watch Christmas on Christmas Day. Day. Yeah, which is very smart from Disney uh, because. They know on Christmas Day, after you open up presents with your kids, you're just going to have a bunch of like sugar loaded children. You need to just plop them down and be like, here, watch this. Watch this new Disney movie and just Mm. be into this. And usually people would go to the movies. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I always love going to the movies like either on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve or something like that. That's a little tradition I do with myself because I'm a pathetic uh, man. Um, But Disney has the luxury of just being able to drop this on here. Most other studios do not uh, to the point where they can trust, like we'll make enough money from people just signing up for the subscription service that they'll stick around. Disney also has the luxury of saying, well, Mandalorian comes out the end of October. So you aren't going to cancel your subscription for two weeks. You want to stick around for soul at that point. I'm going to be watching that baby Yoda. Mm. So, I don't know. I feel like everybody's scrambling to figure something out, especially since all these new streaming services are coming on board. Do you guys think that if a vaccine comes out, then literally the following month, everything's going to just be flooded back again? No No way. Hmm. No, but so the other piece of news uh, that's related to this is that uh, AMC announced that they are uh, pretty much they are broke and that they will be completely out of cash by the end of 2020 or early 2021. It was an SEC filing yes. where they're basically sounding the alarm to Wall Street and investors. Their stock share dropped to like $4 a share. Yeah, it plummeted. Um, we should say, we should remind people, Regal shut down all of their locations again as of like two weeks ago. Mm. AMC said that they will not be doing that. So they're staying open, even though there's virtually no movies coming out. I looked up what else is still supposed to be coming out. Uh, anybody game for Death on the Nile? Death on the Nile got pushed. Oh, it did? Yeah, Death on the Nile got pushed. Damn. Free Guy? Starring Free Ryan Guy, Reynolds? I don't believe it has been officially pushed. Uh, don't think that that's going to get people out to the theater. The Croods 2? 
Yes. Um, well, so AMC okay, is so trying to bank. Quick, quick sidebar. Who the hell 10 years later was like, can we please have the sequel to the Crudes that we've been waiting for? It's the Crudes. It came out in like 2011 and it kind of just came and went. And I didn't think that anybody gave a shit about the Crudes. Also, we didn't mention uh, Coming to America, the Eddie Murphy yes, sequel. That's a big Coming one. to America uh, is being bought by Amazon Prime, going mm -hmm. straight to Amazon Prime. So all of these final pieces are dropping. All of these movies that were trying to sort of stick out the end of the year to see if anything was going to shift in some sort of positive direction for the theatrical going experience are all basically buckling and saying like, we're either going to go ahead and push all the way into 2021 or make the move to streaming. And AMC, meanwhile, is keeping their doors open. And in the face of that, they're saying they're going to run out of money. So when I see something like that and I see a company that is as massive as AMC basically saying that they are months away from bankruptcy, essentially, that is a shift in the in the industry, a massive, massive shift. And I do think that there's a chance that Regal could bounce back and that they made the right call in shutting down. Super unfortunate for the employees who are getting fucked in the ass from this situation. But on a business side, they could come out the other side mm -hmm. looking good. AMC, on the other hand, might go broke. Yeah, so this is something that I mentioned to you uh, before we started the pod. Um, and you said that Regal might have done the right thing here by shutting down everything to avoid having to pay all this extra cost of all the staff members being there and constantly having cleaning crews and stuff like that. Because even while these theaters are open, they still have to like fog the theaters after every single showing. They still have to deep clean shit <sighs> constantly. And that's a lot of labor cost. Regal decided to shut everything down. And I think that, I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of theater chains, unfortunately, it's really going to affect uh, the non-major markets of the country. Those are going to shut down. Like, I'm sorry uh, if you are in like a small town in Wyoming and you happen to have an AMC there. Game over. Wouldn't uh, hold your breath that that AMC will stay open. So there's there's two conversations I'm curious about here. The first one is what is going to happen to these buildings, these empty theaters all over the country that are going to shut down? I think that there's an opportunity to do something creative with them. And I think with the advent of the 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 re rise of vertical integration and the prospect of studios being able to buy up theaters and having the Disney theater and the Sony theater and the Warner theater, they could give these buildings new life and make really cool experiences that are going to bring people out of isolation in the post COVID era to come to these buildings, you know, because we're in a situation where it's like, why would I go to the movies to see Wonder Woman if I can just see it on my big TV at home. You're, they're they're going to have to create experiences. So that brings us to the other point. And I want, Lee, I want your, your, your opinion on this. How do we save the movie going experience, save cinema for us? How do we, how do we entice people? Cause I know we've talked a lot about like how 
it's like a hassle to go to the movies and how it's like arguably better to just stay at home and like how most people around America feel that way. I'm the wrong person to ask. No, you're not. Yes. You're the average consumer. You, you and I have had this conversation and I'm glad you're bringing this up because now we can air out all our dirty laundry on the pod, how it should be. I think that this is going to, to shape an expectation as to how our quality of content is produced, right? Because right now, like I said on the pod before, a lot of the TV that I've been watching has been better than what I've seen on in on the big screen. Yeah. And the quality of the conversation, the quality, and we have to also respect the fact that a lot of the shows we've been watching, like high maintenance. And I know there's a lot of other shows that incorporate more voices from the trans community and more voices from, you know, um, African-American homosexual community. And like, there's just been shows, shows really take their time to put you into another perspective that helps exercise your empathy. Whereas a lot of movies I felt lately, especially the billion dollar, you know, superhero movies that have been coming out, they're just kind of like snorting content. Yeah. But because but that they're because they're a template, because they're a template and because the stakeholders that are putting money towards creating the, that content, they want a quick fix because they want their return on investment. So I feel like we went down a pretty bad path these past couple decades where right now it's so turnkey for those to get somebody to come in their car and drive to the theater to sit in next to some guy that's breathing heavy on your right next to some other guy that's laughing when there's not even a joke or, you know, chewing on his popcorn or looking at his cell phone, which I know annoys you. Now people can sit on their couch with their 4D TV. I mean, look, tell Hunter. And he, chew he's got it. through content and really put you in that feeling in their fucking pajamas with their own food that they know is better than that cold ass popcorn and have this experience that opens a window. But the other side of that is I like, I think it is giving um, smaller budget uh, content, whether it's a comedy show or if it's a t if it's a movie or if it's a tv show it's giving them a bigger platform but it's also getting flooded people are getting there's a lot of doo-doo garbage too and i haven't they don't show their analytics they don't show like behind the scenes what's being watched for how many minutes or whatever so for me i'm kind of curious like are we also doing ourselves harm by allowing doo-doo garbage to also have a bigger platform for There's us people to that there. love their doo-doo yeah. garbage. So, I mean, a couple of things uh, to your point, because I, I believe me, like I, I a hundred percent agree with you that the content is, uh, has been rough for a while now for the mass people. But what I was going to say before about the theaters is that I think the theaters that survive until next July, they'll make it. Because there's so many, it's trash that's coming for the most part, but it's movies that will make a billion dollars and then the theaters will be able to recover. Well, my more question for you is to bring people back to the movie theaters. 
is it more of going kind of, I mean, for us, we have the art house theory of the Enzian, but like the Alamo draft house style, just kind of that more like make it a whole experience where you go there for dinner and then you hang out at the bar and then you go see a movie and then you go to the bar afterwards and hang out. Like that's what I love to do whenever we go to the Enzian because mm-hmm. it feels more like a full experience. You're there for out. not just the two hours of the movie. You're probably there for a total of three to four hours because you're hanging out before and afterwards. Well, let's be let's be honest about the entire culture that's going to be shifting, because right now in the last 10 years, online dating has become a huge thing. And in the small amount of time that I dabbled in online dating, the movie theater was the safe place that you would meet for your first or second date. A nice public setting. It's a nice public setting. You have your moments of having that awkward kind of like cutesy quiet you know time to be with that person and then usually you go out and get drinks after or you know whatever happens but um the movie theater is really a thing to do that is safe and kind of very almost like an american traditional experience because when i was in italy especially southern italy you would have to drive an hour and a half to go to a movie theater and it was like a big deal because there was like a mcdonald's next to it And you had to swerve through like mountains to get to this theater. And so having a McDonald's and a movie theater an hour and a half away from your house was like a whole experience for people. So we take that for granted having one on every freaking corner. Right. But we have to remember, though, like it's supposed to be art. It's supposed to it's not supposed to be a fantastical experience like doing a bump of Coke where you're just force-fed lights and sounds and flawless action explosions to the point where you leave and you're like, what was the premise of that? Like at a certain point I lost track of, I guess the, the best experience that I had recently where I was like, that just looked cool. Even though I have no idea what the hell was going on. Was that birds of prey movie? <laughs> yes. I watched that and I was like, it looked so cool. There was so many awesome slow-mo like fights, but I still to this day have no idea what the premise <laughs> yeah. was. Well, you're, you're hitting on a couple points here. I think that when you look at Disney, Disney, they have mastered the art of the big movie going event. That's what they do. That's they've they are making buckets of money off of Star Wars and Marvel and all these things. Their new Pixar movie going directly to Disney Plus, I think, is a huge shift. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that this. When you look at the little theater in Italy, they're not going to show the new Pixar movie. Because it went directly to Disney Plus. Even if they have the virus under control, even if they are moving into a full post-COVID world that we're not because this shit is still fucking happening here, Mm -hmm. they are not going to get to show that movie. A Black Widow, on the other hand, Disney knows that they need to hold on to that and that they need to wait to not put that directly into Disney Plus because that is going to bring people to the theater in droves so there's a duality there where on one hand you are losing a lot of movies from the global market regardless of the pandemic just because of the collateral damage and then on the other hand you have like this onset of like this angst this weight of like when is the shoe going to drop 
when is it going to get to the tipping point? But I'm saying that that's good, though, because, I mean, think about it like this. You have to do the, the actual comparison of what I'm saying. Marvel comes in and just rakes in the money. And other movies come out during those same, that same time period and they barely make it. Like, as opposed to, like, on these the streaming services... You're giving people a longer opportunity to really enjoy because I think we're having two different conversations here. We're having a conversation about the industry at large, who's making the money, who's about to bottom out. And I'm talking about the quality, right? Yeah, those are like, two different So for some reason, yeah. people are watching like Chernobyl. Today, somebody brought up Chernobyl to me and how incredible it was. And a I'm year thinking, after it So aired. No, so many people have brought up Chernobyl. And I'm like, if that came out as a movie, it would have come and gone. So to your point, though, I think that those two things are actually the industry and the quality are completely related to each other because the movies that know that they aren't going to make a billion dollars are just going ahead and selling their rights to Amazon or to Netflix or I mean, I'm I'm going to talk about Sofia Coppola later, but I'm starting to do a watch through, get hyped for seeing on the rocks her new movie. And she just sold it to Apple Plus because why if you know that this movie is like at max going to make 20 mil and Apple Plus is just like, here's a check for 10 to 15 million today, Mm -hmm. then you just go ahead and you take that money and you walk away. And I think that that's kind of unfortunately, because I would rather see more of these smaller quality, higher quality films in theaters, but that's more the thing that scares me going forward is what happens to the A24s? What happens to the neons of the world? Like where do those movies go in this evolved world? Do they all go to streaming? Cause I it, streaming and then maybe some boutique art house places, maybe the Indian is able to pick up more a 24 movies, but for the most part is everybody just seeing it on Apple plus. I mean, the rules are being rewritten. You know, you look at like what happened with the Irishman, how the Irishman was a Netflix movie that was able to show at the Indian, but that's a special occasion. Indian is not going to show every, they yeah. didn't show marriage story. You know, they're not going to show every single movie from Netflix. So that's they're not showing gonna, the kissing booth too. Right. They, um, they, they need to rewrite the rules. And I think the biggest question mark still left on the table and it's going to remain a question mark because we're still in the middle of this fucking pandemic is what is actually going to get people to go to the freaking theater? I like, don't feel safe. Exactly. Nobody does. I don't feel safe. And I, I, I think that I, I think maybe outdoor movies might become even more popular. I think, I think this is a really great market opportunity for like large scale, like TVs and home movie experiences. I think that's going to, you know, um, transition probably this time next year, there's going to be all this new tech that resurface that surfaces 
of like your home experience and VR? what that's like? Well, I mean, I will say, I think the best purchase that I made all quarantine was buying like a brand new 60 inch 4K TV to go along with my sound bar and my surround speakers and everything else. The last couple nights I've been doing nothing at home. I've just been doing like double features where I just kind of turn off all the lights in my house and I'm just sitting right in the middle and I build my own theater. Mm -hmm. A lot of people can't do that though. And the problem is, is that as much as I've been training myself over the years and especially this year in particular to be a better at home watcher, to not look at my phone as much, to not be distracted, like hearing a noise and then like going and seeing like, oh, is that a raccoon in my backyard? (laughs) Something like that. There are still those distractors there. And that's why I would still prefer the movie theater. But also um, I know like me and Ernest are in like the one percent here Mm -hmm. of people who want to go see Minari in a theater tomorrow. We're we're clinically insane. (laughs) I don't think so. I well, no, I think that we are a small portion because I think that if you ask most people people are like oh when does uh when do uh marvel bads fight each other again because that's what they care about is like those kinds of things think about the the point that lee just brought up about the people who just think of the movie theater as a good place to go regardless of like the the cinematic quality of the art form it's like going to the movies is a thing for a lot of people can we be honest about something too though there there was going to be a cost break anyway where it was going to be pretty much pointless to go like our economy right now when you go when i was a kid which i'm sure i sound like an old lady it was like five to seven dollars a ticket yeah now it's like 13 to 25 if you go to imax at a certain point that's how many months of a streaming service where the like quality is yeah. well, I mean, better? About if like, it's like, if, like Soul, for example, if you want to go take your kids to see that opening day, it's you and a family of four, let's say. It's you and your mm-hmm. significant other of four, three or four kids. Uh, you're looking at a, over $100 or it can just be on Disney Plus and you can just watch it that way. Like you, families will 100 times out of 100 take that route. I just... My concern more is that uh, and I think that this has been something that's been a problem with movie theaters for a while is that movie theaters are tied with malls and uh, malls are also dying. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just I see it going more of that boutique route going forward or like you were saying, we can talk more about about the vertical integration of stuff. I mean, we we mentioned it uh, a few months ago whenever the big reversal got passed but netflix was able to buy their own theater in los angeles and that reversed a long-standing thing because way back in the 50s 40s 50s 60s movie theater or studios tried to own their own movie theaters and it was outlawed that you cannot do that kind of vertical integration at the federal level that now has been reversed so we could see a sony theater or a warner brothers theater or a disney theater what's we were talking about off mic is if like for the smaller movies for the a24s for the neons do they just go straight to streaming or do they do a partnership with the theaters a24 of course has a deal with apple but does apple decide hey it's more cost effective for us for us not to open up an apple theater what if we just uh sign a deal with sony that 
we'll have Sony movies here, but also you can come see the new A24. You can come see the next film by Greta Gerwig at this place. Mm -hmm. You have to follow the money. And at the end of the day, the people cutting the checks for the movies want to know that they're going to get a return on their investment. So I see that dwindling simultaneously to theaters themselves dwindling because just the cost that goes into keeping the air conditioning running, keeping it staffed, keeping the concession stocked, keeping it clean. Then you add COVID and that there's no windows. I, I just see it kind of spiraling out. Yeah. And and then We're you add shift. their competitors that you pay a fraction of the price and you get better quality in most cases content. I see it dwindling, and like like you were saying, Hunter, I think that the the small mom and pops or the drive-ins are going to make it through. Um, but until then, where I see us going is advancing our at-home experience through tech and new tech that's going to surface. For sure, I think that's definitely true. But here's the other thing, listeners: close your eyes. Imagine the year is 2028, and AMC. Coming off our second term of Kamala Harris. <laughs> and AMC has vines growing off the sides of its walls. It, nobody has stepped foot into this building in over eight years. And in comes Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, to pry off the vines and says, this is the first Apple VR boutique cinema experience Ernest, you're losing yourself here man <laughs> and he invites you in to step in and grab a cocktail and put on a pair of apple vr glasses and step into the a24 world where you'll meet friends like the mom from hereditary <laughs> <laughs> the ticket is 50 dollars, starting and you're all the way in the back the mom from ladybird it's all moms <laughs> it's a mom why do you want so many? The mom, the mom from Moonlight. The mom from, from the Florida Project. <laughs> the mom from Moonlight. And they'll all be <laughs> no. harassing you. Meanwhile, I'm in my pajamas at home, farting on my couch. No one can smell it. No one's complaining. And I am watching on my 4D TV where I have, you know, I can whack off at the same time. You know, like literally mm. I can be I making I do that while out, watching Hereditary too. Like I can eat like a slob and just watch something at my own convenience. I can pause it when I need to pee. I'm sorry, Ernest, but I, it's, we're, we're, we are massaging the culture of at home experiences today. I, I asked you onto ever. this show today to save cinema with us. Oh, and you're dismantling it okay, at every okay, turn. Okay. I know the problem is that you are right. Lee. <laughs> yeah. That is that is the the deep dark secret of all of this is that that's you what are, America wants. Is that because? Well, I love I love the theater in Tallahassee, the one the that AMC in you can rent. I think that's so smart. You rent it, and you have oh a whole the little experience. tiny one yeah 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 but yeah, that yeah. should be something that they allow people to do is well theaters are already doing that amc like we said at the top of the show they're going bankrupt they're letting people rent out entire theaters yeah. for a hundred bucks like they're desperate oh my god i saw a thing at so. epic theaters where uh they're like it's fifty dollars <laughs> you want to come see uh, uh unhinged in theaters with you and 10 of your closest friends wow so check back on here in about 
two years and see if we actually saw Dune in theaters. See if we actually saw Doctor Strange 2 in theaters. Mm. (laughs) Directed by Sam Raimi, maybe. What's sad is that if today we just closed everything, paused. Oh, with the virus. Completely (laughs) went down to like two cases a day. You could reopen theaters in six weeks. you could reopen and then people will be so desperate to get out of their houses that it'll be a wave and then everybody will be rich again. Yeah, so that's the thing. And that you're right because... That's the thing that throughout all of this, I have been trying to remain from the full doom and gloom of uh, movie theaters are dead forever because it's been tough uh, through this year. But I generally consider myself a bit of an optimist. Um, And I just think once the money flow starts again, people will be better. Grand movie theaters weren't in a great spot before this kind of just exacerbated the wound that was already there. Mm -hmm. But now, I mean, you mentioned AMC's uh, stocks went down to four dollars when they can reopen the ones that do survive this when they can reopen. They're going to go back up They're They are going to go up from here. I hope so. I hope so. We'll see. As far as 2020 goes, it's not looking good. But in 2021, we'll try once, again <laughs> once. If movies are able to open in big theaters, then I think you will see that upswing. And I just think, check back on November 4th to see how I'm feeling about 2021. Yeah, I, that's the other thing I was going to say is like just the general mood of America right now is on a potential upswing. Uh, well, there's a real anxiety about just like uh, like, are we about to like get pie on her face again like here what what's about to happen here also uh we should probably throw a disclaimer at the top this is like number seven thousand on the most important yeah. things to be concerned about with the As country and with the world right eight now million americans yeah. infected <laughs> I mean, with covid movie theaters did this to like small performing arts theaters you know what i mean when small theaters and communities where people were doing plays and broad like traveling broadway like that's all yes movie theaters killed those that's a great so point we have to just know i mean that that's so is that why vr is the next step if any person is looking into your crazy idea about vr worlds it would be tim cook yeah so that's why that makes i mean I, tim I, cook is like can i make a 20 dollar vr experience i'm, I'm looking <laughs> at the at the inevitable end game here like that's that's where I see this shit going. You know, you have a bunch of theaters that are shut down. We don't know when they're going to reopen. What do you do with those buildings? Who, knows? Who is going to step in and transform that into a business opportunity? Yes, that's because, just what I was seeing. Like, if you think about it, parents are desperate to rip their kids away from their cell phones right now. Right. Like nobody wants to go into VR world. It's already scary enough how much kids play video games nowadays. Like literally there are people who build entire lives through the screen. And at some point, some people, they don't differentiate themselves from that life. And it's it's freaking scary. And the health studies that are coming out are scary. Maybe the next move is like just like now food trucks are having this big renaissance. Maybe there's traveling like parking lot. Like a circus. Like like a circus, like traveling theaters that go from different parts of your city and just pop up a pop up outdoor theater. Like that would be a really cool, innovative thing to get people outside. Do you Sir- see theaters going in a way of kind of like a 
for lack of a better term, like a FOMO route where it's just like a, like if you want to come see this movie in theaters, you have one week and like tr- and to like to incentivize chance. people to come and see no, it. No, because then that expedites it going to Blu-ray and streaming faster. Mm-hmm. People know that that's the route. Okay. I don't want to breathe in anybody else's. Breath. No, I'm not talking about right now. No, uh-huh. no, no. I'm talking about like a year from now mm-hmm. or something like that. I, I just like. Minari, you have to see it for a week or you have to wait two months to see it on Hulu. Here's here's the thing, though. I don't think that this anxiety of COVID is just going to poof away. Mm -hmm. This is the new shift that we're going into. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to plop people out. There's not going to be a moment where you flip a switch and everybody's just going to be okay with going into massive communal public spaces. Yeah. No, like, no, 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 not I mean, at all. Think if we that bought a mic, had a traveling screen, outdoor screening, and then you guys did commentary after the movie, you could Love totally it. monopolize because then people, people are so desperate for that social experience. They want to go out we'll and set do up a giant things. screen. Should we rent out a drive in just yeah. to invite all the fans? Yeah. We'll show Arctic dogs. Mm-hmm. We'll do a double feature of Arctic dogs and M night Shyamalan's the last airbender. It'll be a, Absolutely. Yeah, hit. because the reason why places like AMC and stuff like that aren't working is because their executive teams make like hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars, you know. So that if you guys just make, you know, maybe 50K a year, you can make it work. Like the small theaters will last, I think. And you know who else can make it work? Here it comes. William Friedkin <laughs> with his... 1973 masterpiece. Are you, are you sure that's the transition you want to go with? You know else who can make it work? Your mother who sucks cocks in hell. Oh, God. <laughs> the exorcist? Let's get to ketchup. All right, ketchup time. Now that we, uh, now that I'm just generally sad about the world, uh, time to get a little bit spooked. Um, so uh, I'll be quick on uh, some of my ketchup. Some of these, uh, because... One in particular, I know we will be talking about a couple weeks when we are doing a horror movie draft. A special episode coming up. A little preview of that. So to get excited for that, I wanted to rewatch one of my uh, favorite horror movies and just favorite movies in general uh, of all time. 1973's The Exorcist. Um, You mentioned directed by William Friedkin. Uh, this movie is kind of iconic for some of the horror elements to it. Uh, but this is a movie that is eternal, uh, because it's as terrifying as it is. And let me tell you, I'm a person who is completely desensitized. My nervins are fucking fried to horror movies at this point because I've been watching scary movies since I was like six. Not a joke. Um. So they're kind of fried. This movie still gets me going and like makes me clench my fist in a way that doesn't really happen. I've now seen this movie dozens of times. But the thing that makes this movie really eternal is that it is not just about a girl getting possessed. It's about a loss of faith. Uh, This the most important character in this story is Jason Miller's Damien, who plays the central priest there, who is a priest who's struggling with his faith and with his religion until he is forced in to see the most horrifying shit that you can possibly imagine. Um, 
This movie is absolutely perfect. Uh, not for the faint of hearts. Uh, I will say like it is still very upsetting. It was denounced back in its day. Yeah, it was denounced by the church. It was banned in many countries in Germany. Uh, they wouldn't even allow it to be released. Nobody in Germany was able to see this movie until like 1999. Um, I mean, I'm sure that helped it. People were like, oh, my God. Yeah, movie. it does. It created like a real lore I, around this movie. It's it was the highest. I mean, it still is the highest grossing horror movie ever adjusted for inflation. The only movie not adjusted for inflation to ever beat it was, do you know, what it is. To beat the exorcist in yeah. box office. Um, I guess Gone with the Wind. No, 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 no. And as far as horror movies go. Oh, was, Silence of the Lambs. No, no, no. Silence of the Lambs ain't be it. 2017's It. Really? The only movie to uh, ever actually pass. And that's uh, not just for inflation. It made $441.3 million at the box office. Wow. Can you imagine a horror movie making? Well, no, you can't because movie theaters are closed. Um, <laughs> I, I, We will talk much more extensively about this movie in the horror draft because this is a movie that will be drafted. But uh, do you, Lee, do you have any thoughts on The Exorcist? I love it. Can I say I watched it right at right before I watched Poltergeist and I almost thought Poltergeist was better. But I also have I also have a very weird, like fucked up sense of, you know, humor. And so I thought I, I and I love practical effects. So both turned me on. Okay, one is just my left nipple versus the right nipple, which is just a little bit more sensitive. Mm. That's it. They're both great. Um, but no, The Exorcist, I would have to say it's been a while. Like now you've you've been talking about it. I want to watch it tonight with all the lights off. It's, well, Hunter, it's a perfect Hunter's going to let us borrow his Blu-ray. Yeah, so. I got a nice digibook with a whole message from William Friedkin personalized to me. I've never um, I've never watched it. And really dove into the story because I was just so freaked out and so excited to see like the practical effects. And but I think because you said that there's a challenge of faith element there, I love seeing people go through arcs like that and struggles that end up good, end up bad. Also, R.I.P. Max von Sydow. Yeah, no, I also wanted to give him a shout out um, who uh, unfortunately passed away uh, earlier this year, uh, March 8th. So he is a king. He's in two scenes of this movie and just absolutely fucking owns it. You see him in the very beginning of the movie and you're like, huh, guess that doesn't have to do with anything until it has to do with everything about the movie. I mean, he is the exorcist. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's also just like one of the most gorgeous movies I've ever seen in my life. You mentioned the practical effects. They hold up still really well. They're still really affecting after all these years. Uh, Girlfriend of the pod, Gaia, uh, fucking hates this movie and will not let me play it around her because uh, she is still terrified of Reagan's face. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those movies that is the reason why I didn't grow up watching horror movies. Did you see this movie at a young age? No. Oh. Because my mom made a point to make sure she, I never saw things like this. Well, I mean, also there's just like this like (laughs) face of just like Satan. That's uh, (laughs) now I've never. It's it's shown in like one frame and like just a shot. Like, so you just see it flashing and it is really jolting. Uh, Now I've never seen it. So which is scarier? Just out of curiosity. You've never seen The Exorcist. A thousand percent. It's Um, scary. It is uh, the first. Ch- oh, are you talking about the new it or the old it? The old it. I saw oh. The new oh, the old it oh, is. Uh, it's not even that. It. It's not even really scary. Oh, I just. Okay. I. It's. Okay. I like the old it better than 
chapter one, chapter two of the new it, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Uh, just read the book. It, the book, it kind of ruins any kind of movie adaptations okay. for you. And if you want to be spooked, that's a good time. Um, part two of my double feature, double spooky feature that I had after the exorcist, I needed to kind of unwind a little bit. And, uh, Criterion Channel has a whole bunch of great classic horror movies on it right now. Um, so I decided to check out 1958's The Blob. Oh. Um, I, I didn't realize that. this was on Criterion. Yeah, it's on Criterion right it's now. It's also on HBO Max. We've had a couple flops recently. A couple? You didn't like The Wicker Man? Oh, I, I love The I was going to bring Wicker that Man. up later. I, I think it, it's, oh, sorry, I don't want to take away your thunder there. So go for yeah, it. we'll get to the Wicker Man. We can talk so. about the Wicker Man a little bit because I do love that movie. But uh, uh, The Blob is starring Steve McQueen. Um, it is just about a strange meteorite that lands and then a blob emerges out of it and nice. begins consuming the town. Um, this won't be drafted on the movie draft because uh, it's really corny. It's kind of funny. Like everything pre-Exorcist at least American film wise was more like you went there for a little bit of a laugh. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't actually want to be terrified. Mm -hmm. People did not go to scary movies to be terrified. They went like maybe jump once or twice and like giggle and like snuggle up with whoever they went there to the movie with. Was there like an, was there like an up and down because Alfred Hitchcock's work was kind of terrifying and you know, it wasn't Vincent horror, Price though. And, but it's yeah, that's that's more of the thriller. I'm talking it about went into funny and then it now it then it went into the 70s and 80s into like straight up horror. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I mean, like the modern idea of what horror is, because I mean, Hitchcock, of course, is the god whenever it comes to suspense. creating thriller and suspense. But I wouldn't say that any of Hitchcock's movies are horror. They certainly inspired elements that would go on to define horror things with the way that he creates suspense thinking particularly of course of psycho or Rebecca or the birds have those little seeds in them that would go on to define it. But um, I'm more, whenever I'm talking about horror, what horror quote unquote horror used to be defined as was pretty much just monster flicks. It was the blob. It was creature from the black lagoon. It was Dracula. It was kind of that the universal monsters and then a couple uh, um, invasion of the body snatchers kind of stuff like that. And then Romero came along and you have freed can come along with the exorcist that kind of inspired more of uh, what we know as horror today. Uh, the blob it's, it's a fun little movie. Uh, wouldn't say it's like a must watch or anything. I'm more just like super nerdy about horror movies. And this was on my blind spot. So I wanted to check it out. I found that the Criterion channel is really good for stuff like this. Something that you can just kind of put on this, this classic little thing that isn't really going to be a big investment in terms of time or effort. And you get a little bit of like a history lesson yeah. in, in, in movie making. Yeah. Too. I mean, there is like, that's, that's kind of the thing. I mean, there is plenty of like flawless masterpieces that you can watch on the Criterion channel too, but it does have a ton of this stuff where it's just like, I want just kind of a little peek into what old Hollywood was like, like, and it kind of shows you that not just Hollywood international cinema as well. Um, but I mean, there is like some really, really cutting edge uh, 
special effects that happened in this movie and some really cool practical effects happen. One note that I found uh, is that it was so easy to be a bad actor in like the 40s and the 50s. If you were just uh, white, you were good. Like you could probably get cast in something if you were just like handsome and white. That's why it's kind of like Steve McQueen has uh, stood the test of time is because he was actually like a good actor at a time when there was just no good actors. There's a little boy uh, in this film who uh, I can't find his name. Um, I think it's Henry Elbert Smith, um, who plays a little boy in this movie. He was in two movies. He was in this and he was a movie called 4D Man a year later. Probably the worst child acting that I've ever seen in my life. He's just like, Oh, sister, I heard you get up. Will you bring me a dog back? It's it's horrible, but it's like really funny. Like it's just kind of like they couldn't afford to get multiple takes. <laughs> no, because no, like- they're all doing it on very expensive film at the time. They're like there's like kind of there is one or two moments where you can see like there's a little discrepancy in the scene. And uh, the directors at the time, uh, Irvin Yewood, Yeworth and Russell Doughton. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, I don't know if you're alive still to hear that, but I do apologize to you. Um, where there's like discrepancies in the scenes and in the shots themselves, but it all kind of works towards it. Anyways, I mean, if you just have some time and just want to throw it on, it's a nice little background thing. It's a nice post-Exorcist uh, cool down, I'll say. There you go. Uh, Wikipedia describes it as a growing corrosive alien amoeboidal entity. And uh, the blob itself kind of just looks like, you know, have you ever gotten like just a plate with like a little scoop of jello on you like shake it around and it jiggles? That's kind of how the blob moves. It's just like jello that just kind of like jiggles, but kind of jiggles towards you. You have to respect the fact that that was probably really freaking hard to make. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure it was because there is some shots. For the most part, you can tell that they use more miniatures to like bring it down. But there is a couple of things where you can tell like it's at least like knee high. <laughs> it's just like, did they just make a shit ton of jello for this probably. practical effect? Like what did they do for this? I don't know. It gets mushy after a while. Yeah. Much like the jello. <laughs> um, a <laughs> couple other things. Uh, so funny that we were talking about movies going straight to streaming earlier. Sophia Coppola, the queen um, the other queen, I am wearing an Ariana Grande shirt right now. A uh, shout to her new album coming out this month. But the other queen, Sofia Coppola, um, has a new movie coming out on Apple Plus in two weeks. Uh, it's also coming to limited theaters uh, now. Um, so if you are in a place that AMC is playing still this, hanging in there. I don't know if AMC is playing this. I know it's playing at our local art house theater, the Enzian. Um, but. I will say uh, I've had some pretty serious blind spots whenever it comes to Sofia Coppola or blind spots or movies I hadn't seen in a very long time. So last night I did a double feature of The Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation. Um, Virgin Suicides I had never seen before. I know it's kind of considered like in the pantheon quintessential coming of age movies, particularly for women. Um, have you seen this before, Lee? No. Okay. I know it's like like Gaia loved this movie and I know a bunch of people on like Larabox and stuff like that talking about this is a great coming of age movie. It is like you see this movie in Kristen Dunst, you're like, okay, cool, she's gonna be in my life for the next 30 years. Uh it's one of those performances that she gives. She is 
so, so good. Josh Hartnett is incredible in this movie. It's kind of like he's like sleazy, but also like you just want to fuck this guy so bad. And like he rides that line you. so well. Josh Hartnett in 1999, he, he was, was he was a he was a fucking hunk. He's got the long hair flowing and everything, and just the cute little stubble. Oh, he's got a. And then Pearl Harbor happened. Yeah, um, we won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, Virgin Suicides. I also watched on the Criterion Channel. I believe it's also on Prime Video. Um, I think that's on Prime. I'm not sure. I watched it on Criterion Channel, but it is really a masterpiece coming of age film. I feel like it's only as underrated as it is because it has a predominantly female cast. And if it had a more male cast, then it would be talked about uh, more widely or at least more widely seen. Um, I mean, a female director too. Yeah. In 1999. That too is going against it. I do highly recommend it though. I really love it. I don't want to get too much into the story and everything because there is, it's also, it's really funny. Um, is another thing about it like it has aged really really well and like purposely funny not unintentional comedy we have a friend who loves marie antoinette like it's i think i doesn't she say that's, that's like another one movie? i still gotta see it's, I it's good it's, it's a little long it takes its time but i mean when i think of kirsten dunce i i think of um spider melancholia oh oh which i loved wow, and hated a- that's a wild uh, thing for Kristen Dunst to I get I loved out. it and hated it, but I loved it, and she did a great performance. I uh, I still need to see Marie Antoinette. That'll be next on my watch list. Um, but my part two that I watched in my double feature was 2003's Lost in Translation. Uh, I always wanted to see this movie. Starring ScarJo and Bill Murray. So... This is I, like the ultimate like Tumblr darling movie. I saw it. Yeah, it like this, confused. like Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> I was lost the whole time. I had no idea. I was lost in translation of the movie <laughs> in my mind. Well, so I think I saw this movie when I was like younger. Like I think I'm probably my sister showed this to me or something because there's certain scenes that I definitely I vividly remembered. But the story as a whole was like mushy to me. So. I was glad to rewatch this. I just, I rented it for like four bucks on Google play. Um, but it's so good. Uh, ScarJo, this was like pretty much her coming out party. She had never really been in anything seriously big of note before this movie. Um, 2003. Yeah. 2003. So well before her black widow times, well before her or, um, and now of course marriage story, I will say, um, I, on past podcasts, have not been the biggest supporter of ScarJo, uh, just because I think that she phones it in on some of her performances. Um, but I think that between this and Marriage Story and rewatching her fairly re- recently, I know that she has this kind of dynamite performance in her. I just, I almost wish that we saw it more, which, I mean... But I could say happens. the same thing about Adam Sandler. Like I could say the same thing about hundreds you of could different say people. Say that about fucking Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Chris Hesworth, Mark Ruffalo. Mm-hmm. Like everybody, well, yeah, everybody's gets, in those movies. Yeah, they don't disappear. They're about. not chameleons, except for in her skin. Under the skin. Under the skin. Under the skin. Great. Yeah, yeah. She disappeared. But no, my my even point, the peripheral characters in those like Anthony Mackie and stuff like like yeah, those guys. They're just my like, point is not know, that they don't they don't have the talent. It's just that the Marvel movies don't have an interest in showcasing any talent. 
It's just they're like cardboard cutouts at a certain point. Well, it's also I I think you every actor or actress has a thing that's kind of their thing, you know, and I think she's kind of hot. So why not have that same, you know, if you look at the one that she did with my lover boy, what was that movie called? The, um, the one with Joseph Gordon-Levitt where she's from New Jersey. Don John. Great She kind of disappears into that role. I think she did a really good job, but she's also kind of the sex appeal. So she still has to look like Scar Jo. She can't completely transform. You know, she could have looked a lot more Gucci hood if we wanted her to. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Well, also, because, I mean, she does those. She has movies. I mean, even she does like a weird mix where she almost like alternates like every every other year, every couple years doing like she's like, this is the year where I just kind of make like more artsy movies. Like in 2013, she made her and Under the Skin. Mm -hmm. And then. But then also you get years like 2017 where she's like, I'm going to do Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. I think I'm the right race oh, for that. No. Um, That's weird. So aside from ScarJo as the person, uh, she is incredible in this movie. Like she is so, so good. Bill Murray is like right on her level. Like I think that one of the best part, like whenever she has another like a-lister and it's just kind of a two-hander i think that that's the best thing that was some of the best work that i see her in is whenever it's just like the two of them playing off of each other because then you get a little bit more of that charisma and charm and it's not just like look at me i'm a statue like it's not just like more you human. are it's, it's it, yeah, yeah you're you, it feels more human it feels more realistic it has to be how the character is written and how the director utilizes the talent mm-hmm that must be it because if it's there, it's there. It's just who lets it shine through and who just wants them to be a statue. I mean, no, no bomb back, incredible mm-hmm. director, like Spike Jones. Yeah. Um, well, even, know. even if it is just her voice and her, uh, she is incredible voice acting in that film, like very, very underrated, uh, performance. Not like Mowgli though. Um, Isn't oh she- my God. Yeah, in the Jungle Book. Oh, yeah, the Jungle Book. She's Whoops, I get the those freaking snake. Oh my I God, forgot that. I, forgot. I totally forgot yeah. that. I got Mowgli and Jungle Book. I thought they were the same because <laughs> they both came out. Like- they might as well um, be. So speaking of the director, this is a movie that I feel like had to be made by a woman. Um, and I mean that in like the most beautiful way possible. I think this is like a borderline, like it's close to a perfect movie. Like I really, really just the movie like completely floored me. It's about these two people who meet up in Japan who are dragged there, uh, for reasons that they, it's not by their own choice, like that they want to be there or like there's some kind of just there's something else that's making them be in this place and they just feel lost. They are both lost souls. Uh, Bill Murray is like pretty much a midlife crisis stage and ScarJo is in kind of that quarter life crisis stage. She's in her mid twenties. She's been married for a couple of years, starting to have some relationship issues. Bill Murray has been married for 25 years. He's been having relationship issues. It's just these two people meet and they're there to just kind of, give advice to each other and help each other through that through this. And 
I won't say too much specifically about the movie, but the title Lost in Translation is the most perfect title that you could ever give this movie, aside from the obvious there in Japan and people, of yeah. course, <laughs> the misinterpreting Japanese. of each other. Um, their relationship with each other is really, really beautiful and touching in this movie, and it completely floored me. Um, wouldn't recommend doing a Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation double feature unless you just kind of want to be a little bit of an emotional wreck afterwards like I was. But hey, you know what? I, it's 2020. Whatever floats your boat. This movie is streaming on Peacock. Oh, I paid for it. It's Peacock. on Peacock? Yeah, a real streaming service that exists. You can watch movies on there? I thought you just watched short clips of The Office. I don't know. It's on there. Huh. So okay. Check it out on The Cock. Um, is it on the free version or do you have to pay the Peacock premium? It looks like it's on the free version. It looks like Peacock did a little bit of a Bill Murray collection. Oh, um, that's neat. It is like it's like low key, like a top three, top five Bill Murray performance. He is so good in this movie. Yeah, it looks like Peacock has like. uh, Just some some Bill Murray. Deep, deep cuts. Oh, uh, also, I believe that this was the movie that won Sofia Coppola only Oscar for, for writing. Yeah, for screenplay, they, for best original screenplay. Peacock also has Broken Flowers starring uh, Bill Murray. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. Peacock, what's what's up? What's up with that? <laughs> uh, real quick before I get into my ketchup, Scarlett Johansson. Before she became a mega Black Widow superstar, she starred in The Prestige. Yes, yeah, Nolan. That's right. She starred in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie as Princess Mindy, King Triton's yeah, daughter. Yeah, no. That's also, maybe that's Spike Jones watched the SpongeBob movie and was like, that's a good voice. I need that voice in my movie. And here's the big one I want to I wanna gauge you two. On what you think of this one. Michael Bay's The Island. With Awen McGregor. Do you want me to have an emotional reaction to that? Or uh, or what? No. <laughs> nothing about The no, Island. Nothing. Um, it is kind of funny. Like she did have a little bit of a delayed. Re- like people. She had a widely like critically acclaimed performance in this movie her and murray both did despite neither of them being nominated i believe she got she got swallowed up into the woody allen uh cinematic universe yeah that's that's unfortunate vicky christina barcelona etc she was really uh buying in for that comeback story for woody allen the big one we bought a zoo yeah that's the one that that's the real coming out part it wasn't iron man 2 didn't she have some childhood star stardom uh, she did a couple, but nothing notable. Yeah, nothing super big. She was in like uh, Home Alone 3, uh, The yet, Horse Whisperer. But yet she outlasted like Kristen Dunst, who was, you know, in the interview with the vampire movies and has had. And I've never well, really seen her. Kristen like Dunst, she does a lot of stage stuff now. Like, I think that part of hers is, I think that's at least partially by choice. Also, um, Hollywood is notoriously not great uh, for women. Um, Just kind of. It's gotten a little bit better where the window is widened because it used to be uh, if you're a woman, you have three years 
and then you're done. Um, it's a little bit better than that now, but still not Extremely great. Um, I'll just say, I mean, I just, I, I do really, I'm starting to come around on ScarJo a little bit more. She's Even talented. if she does, she does, she does phone it in Dude, a lot. I'm telling you, her performance in Marriage Story and is we bought a zoo yeah, is Oscar worthy. Well, her window's closing. Her Halloween, her Hollywood window. <laughs> they better look. They better hey, get Black Widow out now. Hey, look, I think ScarJo will be fine. It, she's. I mean, she's much more talented than like J Law. If we're comparing to other actresses of, she's her, not going like, to be Meryl. Did you see no, J Law is in the new uh, Adam McKay movie? Yeah, along with like forty other people. Um, look, I I've made my stance clear on J Law before. If you like J Law movies, like I'm I'm happy for you. Hunger I think Games? everybody should have their thing. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah, Lee. It sounds like you share my sentiment. I like her. I think she's funny. I don't. I just don't think she's a very talented actress. You didn't see Mother. Yeah. I mean, she's just one. She's one note to me. Hey. Quick, I, I, do I do a quick thing on like how mother got uh, like brought back up again shout to David Sims from the blank check pod who's like is mother actually a masterpiece it's not, it's not. here's I the just, thing so it's not so I like that's that it my rating is very fair I think everybody should be a Daniel Day Lewis or something like that. <laughs> yeah. if you're not Daniel Day Lewis or Meryl Streep get the fuck out yeah. but I think that that's not fair did you hear that Daniel Day Lewis is going to be the new Iron Man, <laughs> and and you know who's playing ScarJo's mom is Meryl Streep. Well, They're all getting sucked up in the Marvel machine. I, oh shit, you're gonna make me say something I shouldn't, but I didn't see the scene in the major last Marvel whatever Avengers movie when Iron Man died. But I bet you if Daniel Day Lewis did a death scene as Iron Man, it would have been so heart wrenching and so real. Cop. I'm dying, cop. <laughs> give, give me the blood, cop. RDJ was heart wrenching as fuck. Yeah. He brought it, man. Yeah, I he, don't know. I, it, that made me think that maybe RG did RJD. <laughs> Robert Downey. Jesus Christ. He's a little pompous. Maybe it made me think Robert Downey Jr. had hope. Um, and then I saw Doolittle. Oh Christ. Okay. And I was like, nah, okay, never mind. He's just All gonna right. be cash and checks for the rest well, of his life. Unless they postpone the Oscars, we know who's lining up first for best actor. Uh, Remy Malik repeating as monkey. He's <laughs> <laughs> going for two. Okay. Let's close this out with a quick run of catch up on my end. Lee and I have been watching a lot of stuff together. So pretty much all of this is stuff that we've watched together. I'm not allowed to watch anything without you. you no, you, no. I've been watching Fargo pretty much on my own. I said, I'm not allowed. You don't let me get to the remote. I'll here. start with Fargo. <laughs> I love Fargo. I think it's one of the best shows on right now. It doesn't get as much love as it deserves. It took a few years off while Noah Hawley was making Legion. So now that Legion is done with three seasons in the can, wow. he's back with a new season of Fargo based on the Coen Brothers movie starring Chris Rock. This one's different because it takes place in the 50s. Uh, I guess season two was also a little bit of a period piece taking place in the 70s. The The really big thing that sets this season apart is that it focuses much more on the crime than the cop side of things mm -hmm. or the the uh, local man or local woman commoner in way over their head type of thing. This is a crime show. 
this season. Mm. It's about crime families. It's about crime dynasties in Kansas City, Missouri being passed down from family to family, from generation to, to generation, a struggle between. So it starts out with the Jews and then the Irish come in and then the Italians. And now Chris Rock with the African-Americans coming in to take over the crime syndicate of Kansas City. I'm about four episodes in. Just a fantastic show. Just, just so well made. Heavy Godfather vibes because mm. it's crime Don't in the me. 50s. The cars, the look, the feel. Just And then the fact that it's like an Italian crime family too. With freaking Jason Schwartzman mm-hmm. as the lead Italian crime. Kind of wonder he wasn't with the the Jewish. Uh, <laughs> he is a little, <laughs> little Jewish. Uh, Our Jewish gang, we love Jason Schwartzman. You, uh, you also got Ben Wishaw in there, Paddington. We hey, love to see him. Love ben Wishaw. Um, you got Timothy Oliphant as like a Mormon um, sheriff. Shout out to the um, justified heads out there. And... Jesse Buckley, your queen, uh, as a question mark, question mark, murderous nurse. Great, great stuff. How so far? How does it compare to the other seasons of Fargo? It's on par. They literally every season of this show is fucking great. Is this the last season? Maybe because it hasn't been. They made a big deal. I remember when the last one came out, like upon its release, they were like, yeah, Noah Hawley's coming back. But I haven't really heard anything. I I mean, mean, I'm sure three was like three years ago because Legion, he made Legion in the interim. So he finished season three, made all three seasons of Legion and now is back with season four. Yeah. So do you think that uh, like FX just has a blank check for him and they're like, whenever you want to write more. Just yeah. come we on got back. You. We got we Chris Rock in doing the fucking We got that Disney money now. We can open up the bank for you. It's on Hulu with FX on Hulu. You can jump in without watching any of the previous seasons because it's a brand new story. So that's one of the, the great things about this show is that it kind of connects, but not really. All you need to know is the basic strokes of what the Coen brothers set up with the original movie. Cold, snow, blood. Death, stupidity, coincidence, luck. Sex, I hope. A little bit. Do the Coen brothers, do they have any involvement Nothing. with the show? It's literally it's all just Noah Holly. Holly. Yeah. Okay. That's why, because I, I mean, from everything I've heard, it's that it has the vibes of a Coen thing. He, he does a great job at emulating that. <laughs> but at this point, four seasons in, it's its its own thing. So that's Fargo. You can watch it on Hulu, on FX on Hulu. Next thing, we've been watching the Amber Ruffin show on Peacock, mm-hmm. on the cock. Mm-hmm. This is a, a lady who was from the Seth Meyers late night and is now off on her own. And this is a show that is being produ- written, produced, and created entirely in, within the parameters of the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's no audience. Yeah. And it's done directly to the camera. And it's like just shy away of being something like the Eric Andre show, like an anti uh, talk show. It's not quite on that level. It's not absurdist to that degree, (laughs) but it it has that tinge of like, we know this is stupid. We know this is ridiculous. And it's not every night. It's only once a week. And 
she's able to talk about current events and address the insanity of what's going on in this country today and do it in a really like entertaining way. Yeah, I mean, I watch I watch Stephen Colbert every single day. I watch John Oliver. I I just I don't know. I just grew up always with like Conan O'Brien on or something. I always had talk shows on. And I think that's so weird because I'm just learning that that's a thing that I feel comfortable just putting on in the background. And just I think it just makes me feel like there's people in the room when I'm alone and it just makes me feel comforted. But what I've noticed during COVID is that a lot of these talk shows have had to scramble to try to figure out a way to still be funny. And I've caught some moments of just like, you can feel the insecurity of yep. the talk show yeah. host. The Jimmy Fallon like, is the worst. They're awkward and they don't really know how to still like, they they feed off the audience. So they're kind of losing a little bit of themselves in this moment. And I can see how it's getting to a lot of them. Um but I will say with Amber Ruffin, this show was written for this. Yep. And it's almost, it almost has an advantage. Like the humor almost stings a little bit funnier because her the silence after the delivery is like, you, you, you don't have to be forced into a laughter by the applause. You are genuinely, it's, it's that next level of wit that I really admire, you know, I think if we can talk about the advancement of comedy, you know, I, I think something with like shows like the office, that really awkward, cringy humor that kind of happened with the office and like parks and rec, it started to make its own genre of comedy and now I almost feel like this might be a whole new genre of comedy because we also watch Saturday Night Live, right? That is some rough shit. <laughs> and <laughs> and I grew up watching, remember remember all that and like Mad TV? Yep. Like I grew up watching those things when I was younger and the humor and the corniness and the, the outlandishness and the, the costumes. It was part of the appeal. Yeah. It, was, it was like part of the appeal, but it wasn't really like, it was like, haha, they're so stupid. This is, it's so smart and clever and fast wit that you almost have to really listen to get it, but it stings and then you're on to the next joke and the the silence only elevates the humor. Are you talking about Amber, Amber Ruffin? Amber Ruffin, yeah. Because yeah. SNL, yeah. SNL, like you really enjoyed the <laughs> Jim Carrey Biden stuff. I did because it was reminiscent of because other times that I've watched it, um, other times that I've watched SNL, it's like slap your knee funny as opposed to. I mean, to, that's always because I really what trying to go for. Yeah, but I really loved Mad TV because it was raunchier and like worse. And it was like almost like they're trying to dig for something like to, to yeah. really F with you. And this last the last two SNLs that we watched, I was like, oh, my God, are they really going there? Yeah, but that was only really there? that was only the cold open, right? And then we try to keep watching through the sketches. It is unwatchable. Oh, it they're is bad. So bad. They're cringy. They're bad. But like, still, it's more. It's harder humor to to chew through than what it was. I think SNL was kind of. It's been going fun. that way for for a few yeah. years. I'm, I I mean I think with the Amber Ruffin show, I think that she's able to do these like outlandish sketches. Some of them hit, some of them don't. But 
she's getting pretty creative. Like there, there was like a, a song and dance number this week that was really funny and kind of poignant and timely. And her little sidekick guy is really funny too. So they're, they're playing up these, these tropes of late night TV in really interesting ways in the, in the pandemic era. And I think it works. I think it's, it's cool. She chugs a fucking margarita at the end of every episode Heard that that tells you anything. I almost think that she was supposed to have an audience. Of course. But I think that giving, seeing her talent without it and seeing it's her, her delivery yeah. and giving an, a black woman who I think is a lesbian. Cause she's made a couple jokes about that. Um, I think giving her a platform to just be yourself with no distractions, no predominantly white band or any, you know, it's just her and then her buddy. Well, and you don't have the crutch. I mean, having a live audience is such a huge crutch because, uh, they have a cue card that comes up that tells them laugh or clap (laughs) or something like that. And not having that, I mean, it just does take more talent to still derive comedy from moments that where somebody isn't explicitly saying like you laugh now. Mm-hmm. She is married to a very Dutch man. Okay. Because if you think about it too, <laughs> very Dutch there's, man, there's John the other shit There's the other thought too, Good that pronunciation. you have to wait for the Nailed applause. It. You have to wait for the laughter to end. So they're just like, thinking in their mind what they're going to say next which is what makes colbert super awkward sometimes yeah which which makes her so much more cunning because she doesn't have to wait she can just slam it so that's amber ruffin she's on peacock watch her every friday night i believe um super easy recommendation from us uh next we watched a little bit more of Raised by wolves on hbo max i brought this up a couple episodes ago wasn't too hot on it just because I I didn't feel ready to completely give myself over to these characters, but I did really admire the production value, the money on the screen. We watched the third episode the other night, and I'm kind of itching to watch to watch the fourth mm-hmm. because now I'm finally starting to get connected to these characters. I'm finally starting to get a feel for their arcs and their journeys and their motivations. And the stage had to be set for this crazy ultra future world. And there was a little bit of a growing pain there in the first episode or two to set the stakes and set the platform. But now I feel like I can actually be invested in this story. What do you think? I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is Aliens and Alien. Well, Alien, I mean, oh, I put Ridley Scott first, but um, the reason why I say that is because I've been so hungry for more content like that. And Prometheus was good, but I didn't enjoy it because I was expecting another Alien movie. Um, so I was kind of like one of those ultra fans that had to be a crybaby about something. And when I saw this, I was like, okay. I'm desperate for this type of content. Let's see how freaky they get. And it's, it's, I'm still on the fence. I really like the fact that they play on a post apocalyptic world where people have to escape because of something very relevant today, the battle between people of faith and people not of faith and how polarized we're living in today's actual society 
how bad that could get and how divided we could get to the point where we would have a world war because of that, again, to the point of our own dis- dismantling of our planet. Having to escape to a different planet. So people have to escape and then you're, you, you can't escape from it. And I love that idea. They're adding in other little things of like people getting sick and like the planet itself is not a planet that you can really um, inhabit because we're not designed for it. So I've been hungry for this type of content. Maybe other people on the pod can recommend something else because I've, I've always you always see outer space movies where it's just like, yeah, I'm just supposed to believe that everything's just going to work out. They're just going to go to this planet and not be crushed by the gravity or not like starve from the from the lack of of nutrients that they need or lack. Mm. This kind of plays on all the things that I've always wanted to see in a space movie, too. So not so much. It's not a recommendation. But I have more of a question for both of you since you've been watching it, because I was getting a discussion about this show just a couple days ago with my brother-in-law, who is a like diehard Ridley Scott guy. Like Ridley Scott is his fucking dude, especially older Ridley Scott, the alien Blade Runner era Ridley Scott. I mean, we've seen some of Scott's movies in the last couple of years not be as successful, even though I do really love Prometheus, uh, despite all of its faults, but some of his movies are failing because they are becoming entirely exposition. Could you see Scott kind of making the transition this last part of his career to television because it is more of a long form medium where he can flesh out his ideas more? I think this is more of a shared effort. If I'm being honest, like Mm -hmm. he was very involved in those first two episodes, getting it off the ground, really communicating the visual language, the vibe, the look, the Mm -hmm. feel. And I think that that was a lot of heavy lifting, lifting that you needed from a veteran like him. But I don't think that he's going to be like the guiding presence for this show. Mm -hmm. It's created by a guy named Aaron Guzikowski. Um, and the other episodes are like Drew mentioned last week, directed by his son, Luke, and this other guy named Sergio and this other guy named Alex Gabasi and James Hawes. So there are other people involved creatively. And I don't think that this is just the Ridley Scott show. Okay. Um, obviously he set the table with the first two episodes for sure. And you do get that familiar sort of vibe. But I think moving forward, we're in for something a little bit different. Okay, so that kind of more answers my question where I didn't know if Ridley Scott was looking at this show as like his mind hunter. Where he's like, I come in, I set the table, I hand it off, but this is still like, there's a piece of me involved in this. Something's, Something's there that's stopping it or slowing it down from being that because... There are some things that are a little like half-handed. They 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 quicken the pace in some parts of the show and then really extend other parts that I'm like, I hope this pays off into something soon. That's a Scott thing. Because <laughs> there's so many there's so many parts that I'm like, I'm just waiting for there to be an epic moment as to why we spent so much time showing. I don't know if they're just flexing on the fact that they have this amazing scenery that I'm like, are they on an actual other planet? Because it's incredible visually, but there's other, like I feel key parts of the story that are just kind of like, 
here you go. Here's that part of the story. And, and, and okay, now that part of the story's over. And now we're in this other part of the story. I, when you say that, I just think about Blade Runner when we just uh, very quickly go through yada yada uh, so much of the semantics of the story. And then we spend four minutes of Harrison Ford enhancing on a photo. <laughs> just yes. complete silence. Enhance. Yeah. Move back. Yeah. Go to 14 by 36. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> it's, that's what I'm th- That's just a classic Ridley Scott thing. And mm-hmm. Well, that's Raised by Wolves. It's on HBO Max. Um, the whole season is out now. So we're open to binge it when we have the time. I think we might as well take the plunge and see where it takes us. Next things we've been watching. These are two quick things that uh, I think we're going to talk about when we do our horror movie draft. So we don't have to dive too in. But I want to hear your thoughts on both of them, Lee. The Nightmare Before Christmas mm-hmm. and The Wickerman. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with Wickerman because I hope want to get that over with. I think, On the Criterion channel. I mm-hmm. think it's great for the era. Like if I watched it back when it first came out, I probably would fangirl over it and I can see how it influenced so many other movies that have come out like right off the bat you and I started naming movies that we oh saw my God, dude, that, and shows that new show with Jude Law that you're watching the third day remember how oh, I was yeah. trying to grasp exactly for like, like what that show felt like and I was like it's oh like, if it's like the Wicker Man then you just sold me I will start watching it the is, it is, it, I, I was thought watched, it was like the same it's it's like the same <laughs> it's like the same I think there's a couple things and maybe it's just because of that time they could have of course i think they did it really well for for what the fact that they were like pioneering almost like this whole cult kind of island apparently it's crazy, a real thing religious yeah. you know um shout to ireland but now that i think how it, scotland, it, scotland it, yeah. maybe it kind of ruined it for me seeing the third day first could see where it was heading yeah. because seeing the third day first and how crazy good that is or even midsomar yeah yeah a lot of midsomar and then seeing this i was like man they could have taken it to this level they could have taken it to this level but it was the original it's the original so i have to respect it for for what it was i mean yeah it's it's like uh it was a micro budget film like Mm -hmm. whenever it came out like it it the budget for it was uh five hundred thousand euros Mm-hmm. back in 1973 mm-hmm. um so tiny little folk horror movie you mentioned it that's like based on very uh true things and true kind of cults that exist at least existed i'm sure they do exist in some kind of former faction now but i i really love this movie uh i love any kind of i'm i'm kind of a sucker for cult movies in particular Mm -hmm. cult or any kind of weird like witchcraft or something like that especially if it is a smaller budget it's not trying to be like the new blair witch project or something like that or something like uh uh annabelle adjacent kind of a thing where it's like ah jump scare ah jump scare like that I'm more into like where they try to establish that there is a deep lore in this world that you are just getting a slice of the pie and it might not all work out and it might not all make sense, but you're just along for the ride. And that's why I really love this movie is because I just like I see this movie. I'm like, 
no, it's only an hour 40. Give me, give me more. I want to know more. I want to go to this place. Like I want to learn more about this culture and of this world. Yeah. That's, that's why I want to see Ari Aster's director's cut of Midsommar. Yeah. It's that same similar vibe of like, let me just sink into it. Yeah. But there are moments, even in the short runtime of this, where you do get to kind of sink into it. Mm-hmm. Like the scene where he's talking to the students in the classroom, like that scene really takes its time and you get a sense of this community and you you are almost you're pretty much on the side of the community. I mean, like, you know, because of the nature of the movie that everything's going to turn and, you know, these people are not what they seem to be. But the movie does a good job of like putting you on their side and like seeing things from their perspective. And you hear the teacher talk about how they prioritize this connection to nature and the spiritual world and like you get that you mm-hmm. understand that you're this is not some evil satanic mumbo jumbo bullshit to creep right. you out it, there is a, a, leg, a legit faith yes mm-hmm. yeah it is you, you can understand the allure of this society even if you don't necessarily buy into it all also shout out to christopher lee R.I.P. R.I.P. We love so him. good. In this. I really love him in this movie. And um, also uh, what? the cop Edward Woodward. Yeah. Uh, who plays the sergeant? I was I was looking at Christopher Lee's work, like his filmography. He played Dracula for like yep. most of his career. Yeah. This is, I mean, just, look at his face shape. Yeah. Like he has like just he just looks kind of like if you were going to make Dracula. A person, yeah, Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, yeah, you are uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I love the movie. I wouldn't call it like an a knockout masterpiece, but it was made on the shoestring budget, and the fact that they were able to put something together like so impactful with like basically no budget, it's like you gotta appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Most of the budget probably went into the final scene. With the yeah. effigy. Yeah. I, I just think that the woman dancing naked for no reason was a little strange. <laughs> that was so good. Um, it's some cult shit. But it's yeah. just some cult shit. I mean, but no, the, the movie is uh, is iconic. It just, I saw the third day and it, yes. I see what it could have been yeah. too. Look, that happens with a lot of movies that... I mean, I meant to bring this up with uh, whenever I was mentioning The Exorcist about the tropes that it established and how that movie is amazing because it still stays it still stays fresh without that. Mm-hmm. If you watch something like this is a wild left turn from either of these movies, but something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, mm-hmm. you can appreciate all the kind of stereotypes that it created, but it's not nearly as good as any of the other John Hughes movies that mm-hmm. came out later on. Mm-hmm. So The Wicker Man is on the Criterion channel along with a bunch of other horror movies. You can check him out there. Another little horror movie. I don't even know if you could call this a horror movie. This Is a is this a Halloween or is it a Christmas movie? It's 100% a Halloween movie. I consider this kind of a Christmas movie. But also I'm I'm very fucked up in the brain. So It's The Nightmare Before Christmas. I This is a Thanksgiving movie for me. Yes. It's, it's, it's an Easter movie if you really think about it. They do um, get Easter seed. This bunny. is a hundred percent going to get drafted in our mm-hmm. horror movie draft. But Lee, you want to share your thoughts on this? We just watched this the other night. We actually watched this twice mm-hmm. because it's that short and that rewatchable. Oh yeah. Well, I had it on VHS growing up, and I didn't have. I think I had like ten VHS movies, so I used to watch this over and over and over. I would literally rewind it and have to sit there. 
and hold the button on the rewind button because it didn't automatically mm. go and wait for it to hit. And then I would rewatch it. Um, it's perfect. When you, when you realize we watched the making of after when you realize how much detail and artistry it kind of makes me happy and sad because there's so many people that are artists that go to school longing for an opportunity to be a part of a team that makes 500 miniature sculptures of the same character in order That's to pull off something that is like a miraculous piece of perfection and it's a dying, dying art. It almost is dying as fast as it, it came into fruition. Like, And I don't understand that because what something I said to Ernest was to make something like an Avengers movie, you're paying people top salaries that are like inflated. You're catering breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You're flying people all over the world. You're going to all these gorgeous sites and building all these intense sets and paying like CGI teams. And then you have their makeup people, their hair people. Really, Nightmare Before Christmas was like a couple of guys brainstorming it, saying it out loud in a room. Then you had artists drawing it up scene by scene. That went into the, the puppet people who made the, the actual sculptures. And then that went into a team that made every single version of it before it went into the hands of the people that actually made a move. And then, so if you, if you put all that in one building, in one stationary spot, your budget, like, did you pull up the budget on this? I had the budget pulled up. It was 18 million. So it was actually a little bit more than you expect. Yeah. But that's, just I mean, shot Tim Burton, he wrote a poem for this movie. This is how this all got started. It was, he wrote this poem that was about the story uh, when he was just a simple animator at the Walt Disney Company. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of started to work his way up and everything else. And he eventually was able to get this man to a movie. He has story credits, but he did not direct this movie mm -hmm. famously. My, my theory is that when you're an employee for the Walt Disney Company, any idea that you have belongs to the Walt Disney Company. They probably make you sign some piece of paper mm -hmm. that says that like, any thought that you have belongs to them. But I mean, okay, so you take this, I, I, I will say, like, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I fucking love this movie so much. I had the same thing as you where I had the DVD and I would either rewind it or I also had, a, I remember whenever I got older, my uh, family had an automatic rewinder thing that you take the tape out and you put it in there and just like go super fast. <laughs> and then you take it back out and you put it back in the VHS player. Man, what a wild day. time the 90s and early 2000s were. It's um, 76 minutes. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's, so, it's short. so short. It's so short. You can just have this thing on a loop. It's, and what's kind of funny is that the music is like not traditional in any way. It's very operatic. Like it's not like verse chorus verse chorus like how so many other disney stories are it's very kind of just more classically theater in the best possible way shout out to danny elfman who wrote all the that. music and plays jack skellington Off what? Of, if you saw the if you saw the making of he would be like yeah tim would just bring me some sketches and be like yeah this is what's going to happen in the next scene and he'd be like okay give me a couple minutes and then he'd be like okay, I'm going to write this. And then they'd talk about it. And then they, he'd write it. And then he'd leave the room, come back and be like, that's it. That sounds great. 
And then he'd be like, okay, tell me what's happening in the next scene. And that that's how they didn't the have a music, script. Yeah, the music they, came no script. first before all of the process, which is so intense to me and so crazy. But I think I appreciate it more as an adult now, knowing how intricate. I do think maybe with the evolution of tech, artists could probably, especially with like um, uh, 3D printing, like artists could probably cut their time in half. And if they were invested in, they could make movies like this even better, if that's even a possibility. Well, the problem is, I mean, Tim Burton has tried to dive back into this well with this type of animation before with things like... Coraline. Well, I would Frankie, say... I would Frankie say, Winnie. well, Corpse Bride would would be what I say is the not effective version of this, which is kind of, I, I am not a fan of Corpse Bride. It's supposed to be the spiritual sequel to Nightmare Before Christmas. I really don't enjoy that movie very much. Coraline, though, I I really love Coraline because I think that Coraline has a lot more of that craft and it feels like a movie that can't be made without the stop motion effects. Um, which is the same way that I feel about Nightmare Before Christmas. There's all these uh, movies that are getting remade now with like the illumination animation on it with like like mm-hmm. I we were on a freeform the other day and like the new Adams family was on. I just threw it on for like 10 minutes and I was like, oh, this sucks. And we just put on the old Adams family because mm-hmm. it adds no creative value to the movie at all. This is a movie that it has to be stop motion because for like all of the imperfections in it are what make it perfect. Like all the kind of like the weird jumpy cuts of like the scary pumpkin coming out of the Jack in the box and things like that. Like that's what kind of makes this movie perfect. Well, I, I like, I, I, I like the, the Beetlejuice kind of component where you still have real world props and settings, but then when a monster comes into life, it could also be stop motion and it's it's all artistry. Yeah. Which we might incredible. have to add like a family horror component to our horror movie draft because, I mean, between Beetlejuice and Nightmare and I all mean, these you, other movies. You have the, the horror comedy one. Yeah. That's uh yeah. There's a uh, there's just so many that this Beetlejuice kind of defined a lot of my life. So, so to wrap up on on Nightmare Before Christmas. It's a holiday show or excuse me, a holiday movie, which is always like the banger. Holiday movies are always out like usually at the top of somebody's list, usually because it it has nostalgia automatically attached to it. Then you have the fact that you have a real arc of Jack Skellington, who I think upon everybody who could relate to that, you go through a moment where you feel like you're missing something in your life. You try something new and then you realize, well, I'm really good at this original thing that I just needed to revamp in my in my own perspective. And then it's a love story, which I absolutely admire. And then the effects are incredible. Extreme levels of 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 artistry and it's short digestible the music's incredible i think it's a perfect film i think it really is yeah yeah it's it's so so creative the tiniest little detail will catch you especially if you're watching it over and over you'll find that like you're admiring like something in the corner or just this quick Mm -hmm. little motion that happens for just five seconds it's like oh my god they took the time to make jack blink 
Yeah. To just blink his eyes. The amount of work that went into that. It's unbelievable. It's a perfect movie. It's on Disney Plus right now. Last thing before we close out. I want to talk about Pen15. So this is something that Drew is going to talk about when he, if if he decides to return, if he ever wants to make a return to the yeah, show. If he wants to crawl back to us. Yeah. Um, but we binged through season two. Mm-hmm. And I just want to get your thoughts on it because we loved it. Um, well, I know a lot of people are going to say the typical cliche things about it of being like, like, a girl's story of being awkward and bullied and all those things. But I honestly, as a piece of art, like as a piece of content that's out in the world, it is so raw and it's so, so honest, honest. Like I've been dying to see, um, something that is actually fully relatable because I I lost myself in it because I was also going through my memory and relating all the times where something almost exactly like they were going through happened to me. And it's, you kind of forget that they're three times the age of these kids that they're playing Mm -hmm. alongside and you're just wrapped up in their, their story and there's no right or wrong. Like there's no right or wrong in anybody's story. Like their emotions are all in crazy knots and the scenarios that are taking place are so honest and real that you can't really choose sides with anybody. Um, You kind of understand even some of the bullies, you get to understand what kind of social pressure they're going through and the parents getting a divorce and Oh, that's some of the roughest stuff. Yeah. Like it gets so hard to watch because the show is cringe to a certain extent with the comedy, but the drama really rails in at a certain point. And it's like unexpected because it can be such like a zany, wacky kind of like way out there show. Mm-hmm. And then it reels you in with this mm-hmm. like heaviness, yeah. this real like sadness and and realness. Mm that it's so effective yeah i mean you uh you brought up how like you forget that they are playing (laughs) children's versions of themselves and they're the only real adults in most of the show and i think that to that point is because season two in particular takes a big twist where it becomes much more dramatic there are still plenty of comedy moments in it but it does get more into those dramatic tones, which I found to be the most effective parts of season one. And season two just goes even more into that with the divorce plot line with kind of Maya figuring out who she is as a person and this general insecurity. I know this is a show that a lot of people have talked about speaks to kind of the coming of age experience for women, but also there's a lot of stuff in the show that I related to deeply Mm -hmm. of growing up of like, just that constant insecurity that you are never quite enough for this world and of just trying to make everyone like you so much. Everybody feels that when you are 13, you feel like everybody is always looking at you Mm -hmm. and just, you have to do your best to be important. I think it's one thing that the show gets so right. It also makes it feel like 
whenever something happens, it makes you feel like it is the end of your world because for you, it is, you don't know what the fuck like life is. You're a kid. You don't have a job. You don't know what's going on with society mm-hmm. or anything. So like if there's a boy or a girl who you like, who doesn't like you, that is the end of your world. Mm-hmm. Like that is it. And that's something that the show captures on. And it's kind of funny that sometimes dramatically those smaller moments are raked up to the same level as actual big life changes like a divorce in the family are Mm -hmm. because as a kid you aren't able to emotionally you don't have the emotional intelligence to separate anxieties and stressors in your life to say like this is a higher point of emotional stress than this is it's just everything is ramped up to 11 i think that's one thing that this show gets really perfect with some of the writing Mm -hmm. it's it's genius to a certain point because those moments of showing you the nuance of what these two girls are going through in their lives and the way that they're dealing with it in any other show you'd have the big speech you'd have the big moment Mm -hmm. where you'd have one character telling the other one, like your parents are breaking up your family and I'm here to save you and take you away from that pain because I'm your friend and I care about Mm -hmm. you. This show never goes that over. Mm -hmm. It shows you those moments of humanity and friendship and camaraderie and the most like tiny minute, like little touches perfect genius like there's this episode we just rewatched it the other day where they decide to become witches and Uh. on the surface it's hilarious because they're making crazy funny faces and it's it's just funny to see them do this stupid witchcraft shit but on a deeper level it is so genius because it's about how anna's parents are breaking up and how Maya feels this subconscious need to be there for her friend. Mm-hmm. And then not it doesn't end there. Then they take that and they run with it and they see how it backfires and how it starts to spin things in the wrong direction. And it just it becomes this perfectly set up machine mm-hmm. of character motivation and, and arcs that just pays off beautifully. And the other thing I wanted to get at was to your point about like what we relate to from the male experience. This show is one of the only shows I've seen in a long time, maybe ever, that really honestly brutally shows without, you know, being like a horror show really or like a hard hitting drama that men are bad yeah and that boys are bad Boy, like teenage boys are inherently like awful human beings and, and like and the worst people capable of doing absolutely despicable things mm-hmm. and the way this show captures that i think is so good and so poignant in the tiniest little interactions the tiniest little jokes the little lines little sayings here and there that cut so deep mm-hmm. so so deep when you're that age and it recontextualizes a lot of things that you think back in your life and your experience from middle school and think like huh i was 
I was shitty or <laughs> I let my friends be shitty. Mm-hmm. Everybody was shitty. And it was just yep. <laughs> the, the way the, the show puts a focus on that. It's not trying to make this big statement. It's not trying to be this big, important show about important things. Mm-hmm. It's just letting you know, like, Hey, look at this, this thing that we think is just normal and established mm-hmm. in how, children and and how we're brought up chew on that feeling it's it's, chew it's on an that awful feeling. thing let's drag you through that <laughs> feeling every episode let's make you let's shove your nose in it because we all felt it we've all been there it's all been uncomfortable for all of us let's talk about why when you're around a lot of your friends you feel an urge to tease your friend and then put her down and then you feel good and and the thing is is like when i was looking at it my mind was being blown because I'm thinking to myself, how did they write this? How did they write and capture these feelings and put it on paper? And And star in it too. And then I watched it. um, I watched interviews with them after and about how they talked about their process. And they said, literally it's the, it's the way they carry their body. It's the facial expressions. It's the, the, they almost had to write in, the emotion through the acting and through the shots more so than the dialogue Mm. and what they actually put on paper to get you to feel that gut wrenching, like experience of what they were going through. Yeah. No, I mean, there is like just such, I mean, that's what another thing that's genius about the show is that it's able to use the idea of cringe in two facets. This is kind of the next evolution of, we were talking about cringe comedy. The office really um, kind of put on the forefront as like, this is the new wave of comedy. This show uses cringe for that, but also uses it for dramatic moments to like make you just want to like throw up and like die and hide in a hole of just like somebody, you know, they'll like say something stupid and then two characters just like stare at each other. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you're watching them just stare at each other for like five minutes in this like prepubescent state. And it just, it puts your stomach in knots, but in like the most creative and cool way possible that it's able to create this kind of emotion out of you just solely based on the acting that they are doing. Um, and the kid, the childhood actors are like, so they're all, they're, they're also good. I wanted to give a shout to, uh, two in particular. Um, one of them, Taj cross who plays Sam. Oh, I'm buying stock in this dude. Like (laughs) this, this dude is good. Like he is, he is legitimately like really fucking good. And he is going places. Talking about talking about relating. I see myself. Yeah. And I see his mistakes and his pain. Exactly. That's the thing is that you can tell all of season. He has a smaller role in season two, but he's even more effective in season two because you can just feel like his pain that he carries with yeah. him where he's just like, man, I really he's fucked not, up. He's and not I, the cocky popular guy. Mm-hmm. He's the sensitive friend who is kind of shitty too. Yeah. He's capable. He's not the oh, hero I mean, he's of shitty, the story. Especially to his own friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's part of the genius here. There's also a cool, like that the show does smartly where it kind of, showcases how in middle school is kind of the first time that you start to outgrow people. Um, I know I did personally, like I lost friends from elementary school to middle school. And then I lost those friends from middle school to high school. Like you 
are growing as a person and the fact that this show started in sixth grade where it's a lot of carryover of friends that you've had from elementary school and stuff and then you're seeing these people kind of start to do different things maybe and everybody's growing at different rates too, right and, maturing. and that's that's another whole wild thing about middle school is that uh just <laughs> puberty is fucking wild where it's just there's like oh, your friend grew eight inches last summer and now he's on the wrestling team. Mm-hmm. Like, things like that. Um, another person I want to give a shout out to, we can avoid general spoilers for right now, uh, but Dylan Gage, who plays Gabe. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Uh, who is Sam's best friend. Mm-hmm. I I love that kid so much. I could not get enough, especially the last two or three episodes of this season. The it play. was like, Oh my God, this kid right here. I'm thinking like, man, I've seen people on Broadway that sucked compared to this kid. Like (laughs) this kid was delivering, delivering. Where did they find find him? And, um, uh, what's the name of, um, their friend who they, uh, pick up? Um, Oh my God. The girl. Yeah. Bro, that uh, was what really is good. talk about cringe they're all really good that was some of the hardest to watch stuff I've, I've seen in a while but we have to also talk about that when you said outgrowing your friends and all that i wouldn't know where to start in writing that because if i were to try to write the same scenes that they put down i would feel like someone would come out looking like an antagonist and someone would come out looking like a protagonist, right? The show is more intelligent than that. Yeah, the way they shoot the scenes, you can understand why you would outgrow that friend and why, like, how much it would mean to Sam to get accepted into the cool kid table for a second. Like, you you get that. It's well done. But you don't hate Sam, you know? Like, there's, there's still just, I don't know if it's just the shots or the acting. It's everything. It's everything falling into place mm-hmm. perfectly. It's yeah. the writing, the directing, the acting, the shot selection, the music, the everything in this show is working perfectly in tandem. And I want to laugh harder than I've ever laughed, but I want to cry harder than I've ever cried in the same episode. It's unreal. It's it's absolutely unreal. It, this is one of those shows that I had been putting off for so long. And I was like, is it really worth it? That weird show with the two girls. And goddamn, yes. I can't believe it took me so long to get the on thea- the fucking wagon. The theater one where one of them is doing sound design and the yeah. other one yeah. is doing yeah. acting. <laughs> have been in any kind of a drama class. That, damn. Uh, so very true. perfect. Um, I looked up the girl. Her name was Maura. Uh, the actress's name was Ashley Grubbs. Um, shout out to her. This was actually, so I was playing the show uh on with uh my girlfriend she was just like i'm just gonna do homework and i was like cool i'm just gonna throw this on uh, while you're doing this to watch that um and she like had to stop doing homework because she was just like this actually did happen to me me my best friend kayla and another girl who i will not name unless because she might be a listener of the podcast um she was like this happened to me where like we went over to this person's house because they were the cool popular one and they had lots of money and all this kind of stuff but really deep down like they were kind of a bitch and like they were like really manipulative and always trying to turn us on each other and everything to be like the best friend Mm -hmm. it's uh it's it it cuts deep let me just tell you it's very real show before we wrap up as you mentioned before lee 
um, you are an old. You are you're one of the old. <laughs> you're an old soul. So oh, what here, is little boy? What does this show <laughs> bring you in terms of nostalgia? Like any any like music drops or like fashion choices? The rolling backpack. I'm like, where's my rolling backpack? I miss it so much. The rolling backpack. Um, the fact that I was always the black Spice Girl. Like I was always <laughs> the black spikes girl and I would want to be posh. I would want to be sporty. And they mm -hmm. would instantly be like, well, you're brown. So you're going to be the brown one. Jeez. Like I remember that. I remember mean, that. Dude. But I also like, I, I think too, um, I was always kind of above it. Not, not to sound snooty or anything. I, I was always, cause I had a rough childhood. So I was always like more mature than other people. So I kind of advanced through. So I watched a lot of those scenarios take place from a bird's eye view and just decided not to put myself in that kind of drama growing up. But I can definitely, I definitely remember times when I did fuck up and hurt someone or say something in a way that kind of burn bridges with other people because of other social pressures and wanting to take the side of someone that I wanted to impress. Mm -hmm. But Middle how school. do you, yep. how do you wrap your mind around those types of things? How do you, how do you admit to that process if no one explains it to you? Well, I and don't think that it doesn't really like, I mean, what you guys were talking about earlier about how there are no good guys and bad guys is that I don't think that the show is necessarily ever trying to like fully indict any one person. I, I think mean, that's think one thing that's smart parents, is that like parents it's they're getting divorced like that the way that relationship. Yeah, is like there's I think that everybody is shitty in their own way when you're that age or even whenever you're still an adult. Like I, I just think that there's if, if you really want to pay attention to it, there's there's a sickness with the fact that like we don't talk about sex like at that age. Everybody's hormonal and acting crazy and, and they don't understand how to talk about vaginas they don't understand how to talk about masturbation they don't know how to approach like dating a girl or kissing somebody and then it or grabbing your turns, period that's how is, like toxic masculinity you know forms out of not having those conversations and it wrecks relationships for the rest of your life yeah so i think i think it's a symbol of that in terms of you know cultural things that i think really dropped a bomb on me going to a homecoming dance never have touched a guy or wore anything like skanky in my life and then going in and immediately seeing people dry hump each other. I remember the shock of that and being like, I what thought we happening? weren't yeah. supposed to touch no nos yeah. together. Shout out to Deer Lake Middle School <laughs> where I, I experienced it was that it was dry humping and then uh playing Soldier Boy, doing yeah. the Soldier Boy dance and then going yeah. back to dry humping like, to like Chris understand. Brown. Why did they let us do that? I mean, to the point about like the inability to handle interpersonal relationships in middle school. I do think that one of the genius parts of the show is that it shows like how that never really changes. Mm -hmm. And the struggles that you go through in middle school kind of carry over in a lot of ways to just the rest of your life. And it, mm -hmm. it, it puts a magnifying glass on like how stupid we are a lot of times in the ways that we deal with each other i think it's so good i, I would, think it's a genius i just don't know i would never get away with talking to my parents like that 
Dear oh yeah, no, God, uh, no way. My mom would punch me in the face. <laughs> no, my if mom I ever has punched me in the face <laughs> because she thought I said something close to anything those girls said. In uh, shout out to uh, having an older sister because let me tell you, you talked about rolling backpacks. I wanted a rolling backpack so bad when I went to sixth grade, and at the time, my sister was in high school, and she was just like, "If you have a rolling backpack, you will get beat up and put in a locker." <laughs> And, and I so was. I got told and so I never got a rolling backpack. I always wanted one. It's not too late. I could be like a 25-year-old man walking around with a rolling backpack. It would be but awesome. You should try That should be it. my thing. Next time for the pod, I'm just going to show up. I'm just going to be like, hey, guys, and like real well, in no, my you back. Gotta be like, you gotta I'll have like, like textbooks that uh, to like uh, just like basic math. Maya has a rolling backpack and a regular backpack. Yeah, that's the move. She rocks yeah. both of them. <laughs> That's I mean, how you do move. it. I'll just say that, Ernest, you are the sweetest, kindest boyfriend ever. And I think it's because in middle school and high school, you got your heart wrecked. You got your heart wrecked. And now he was a dreamer. You're like a you're like a cutesy little sweetheart now. So maybe the irony of all this is the character development in these these developing stages of our lives help mold us into being better human beings or so one would hope. Well, that's a beautiful way to end it. Well, I peaked in middle school, so I don't know anything about that. I've never been sexier than I was at oh, okay. 13. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Um, next week, hopefully we'll have Drew back. I don't know. I think he's leaving. I think he might be going to Tennessee. I think he just texted me that he has got a contract with yeah. Doughboys. So, so we, might, we might just have to do the show without him. Um, we were trying to do an episode on the boys, but maybe he's mm-hmm. just one of the boys now. He's off with Homeland. Yeah, he's with different boys. And Butcher and them. Just so you know, Drew, if you're listening, which I know you don't listen to this on your days off, um, they were crying before we started. Like yeah. they literally have a picture of you that's underneath Ernest's desk. Um Drew, Drew. I don't know why Drew, it's under Drew. the desk. Drew, 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 Drew. Also coming up, Borat 2. Yeah. Uh, that could be an episode. Oh, that and will be an episode. The um, Halloween movie draft will be coming in hot right before Halloween itself. So stick around for that. Um, thank you, Lee. Thanks, Thanks Lee. for coming on. Thanks for I, uh, guest spotting in. You're almost as good as Drew on the pod. I want to drop in like my draft now and fuck over all your Halloween movie draft. Yeah. I mean, you might have to That's not how a draft works. (laughs) You can't just like pick the movies that you want with nobody else picking movies. You might have to just sub in for Drew if he's still gone. (laughs) Uh, We don't know if he's coming back. Okay, I'll do it. Um, That could be fun. You're like a wild card. I have no idea what your list might be. I'm a lot more sadistic. It'd be like, I'm taking H2O with my number one pick. (laughs) H2O. Oh, Christ. (laughs) There's a whole. I'm taking both Rob Zombie movies. There's a whole subset of terrible horror movies that I just like don't let enter my brain. We should have a schlocky horror. Jesus Christ. <laughs> just- Thank you to the donors for donating. Thank you um, for following us on We Bought a Mic on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please do so if you haven't. Check us out on. Uh, anchor.fm for a donation if you want to join the donors please please leave us a review on itunes and keep it clean keep it wabami keep it socially distant wear a mask fucking vote 
you heathens. Vote. Um, I hope if you are listening and you're in Florida, you already registered because they decided to close the voting registration early because of voter suppression. So please go vote. Please, please vote no on two. Vote no on three. All the good ones. Of the state. Yeah, vote yes yeah. on Orange County. Safe split yes, up. on the back of the ballot. Yes. But, but um, on the state amendments, uh, yeah. You guys will get a very special private DM if you vote at We Bought a Mic on Instagram. You uh, mean on Twitter? On the on, on Twitter? The poll? No, no, no. I'm talking about you personally will send a private special DM to <laughs> anybody making, who votes. Ernest is like glaring. He's like, you're giving me more fucking work to do. I'm doing all this shit for the pod. He's going to send you a dick pic. <laughs> mm. And it's going to be We could send huge. you. How about this? How about if you do send us a message uh, that you voted and we will send you a dick pic. It will not be our dick, though. <laughs> it'll it'll probably be either either Ron DeSantis I'll, or um, I'll, depending on how or big, Brad Pitt. Depending on how big of, of a donor are, will uh, be the level of elephantitis dick that you get <laughs> sent in your DMs. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs> gotten a a beethoven movie where's that i I guess they would get confused with the dog yeah yeah there actually has been a beethoven movie so it's kind of fake of you to say that Um, there's been several (laughs) (laughs) beethoven music movie (laughs) it's like a beethoven movie okay 1994 it's called immortal beloved and it stars you'll never guess who plays beethoven let's see 1994 is it like rob lowe or something i'm trying to think of who is <laughs> i'm trying to think of who is like is it old or beethoven or young beethoven you almost just said his name old gary oldman yes <laughs> there we go <laughs> Oh my god, Gary Oldman plays Beethoven. How does nobody talk about this movie? I've never it heard of it. It must be until bad. Right There's no like Gary Oldman is a person who you like know. It's written and directed by Bernard Rose. Oh, I recognize that name. He did Candyman 1992. That's why. Yeah. Um What's the movie called? Immortal. I already forgot it. <laughs> Immortal Beloved? Yeah. Let's uh this let's looks see. rough. Why does why does Gary Oldman look like Dracula in this movie? Oh, okay. No, they are going. I thought that this was whenever you said that, I was thinking it was like about young Beethoven or something. Um I mean, I kind of want to see this now. <laughs> <laughs>